Ladies and gentlemen, how's everybody doing this evening? Everybody's having conversations with themselves. How many of you bought friends tonight? I got one, I got two, I got three. All right, well, this is a new song we're singing tonight. If everybody can hear me, clap once. If everybody can hear me, clap twice. If everybody can hear me, clap three times and stand up. Give Jesus a hand tonight. We're gonna sing about him, because he is a friend of ours, right? All right, here we go.
give Jesus a hand. Amen, amen.
pursues us even when we don't know it, God. Even when we're running the other way, you still pursue us, God. And so, God, there is nothing in our lives that can separate us from your love, and so we receive it tonight, God. We embrace it tonight, Father. And we just pray that as we open our hearts to you, that you would meet us right where we're at in these moments, God. God, speak to us. Help us to see you in everything, Father, to hear and receive your heart tonight, God, for we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Welcome to church tonight. We're glad you're here. Are you glad to be here? Woo! That's good. That's good. Well, this is uh, how many? Now, this is like five. Is this the fifth service we've had? Yeah, they've been rich and good, and tonight's going to be uh, better than ever. And so I'll just let you know that uh, remind you of our all-church meeting. Uh, next uh, Wednesday night. We hope you'll be here at 7 o'clock. We're announcing this a lot, so it must be important, and we must want you there because we keep telling you about it. So I hope you'll show up at uh, 7 next Wednesday night. Well, we are honored to have with us again uh, Pastor uh, John Mendendorf. How many of you have been here when John's been here? Man, y'all are some longtime uh, kind of Salem fielders. Uh, well, John is uh, from Oklahoma City. He pastors a church, Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene, and he's a good friend of ours. And John, we welcome you to our service tonight. Thank you. Well, I like to do a lot of things. I like to watch my beloved Sooners play football. Thank you, Rich, for wearing that. Hey, man. Hey, man. <laughs> And uh, I like to eat when I'm hungry, and I like to preach at Salem Fields. I've uh, enjoyed being here before, and, and you all put up with me before, and I have some really weird stuff to talk about with you uh, this time as well. I figure I probably ought to, thank you, sir. I figure I probably ought to tell you a couple things. I really like your youth pastor and family. Uh, that's the first thing I want to say. Yeah. Um, 
Trent and Dee and Christina and Chris that we just had a really good time. And, and I also feel like I need to catch you up a little bit on what we talked about. Um, we're going to kind of build on some of what we talked about back there, young people. So I actually told them my story. Uh, my story of a faith that finally <laughs> deconstructed and dissolved altogether. I, I think under the watchful eye of God. So that he could bring something back and build something back that was, was better and stronger, uh, longer lasting. I feel like I'm off center. Am I off center back there? Is this, do I need to move this way to be? Oh, this is good? No? Go back? Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. All right. And so I had three messages for the students. And um, I want to tell you kind of what we walked through and talked through uh, kind of in reverse order because I, I was captured rich by that last song. That, that last song about this uh, overwhelming, never-ending love of God. I told them the story of how I really needed a different image of God because, as we all know, the image of God shapes the shape of your faith. And I had tried really scary God, and someone had tried to use scary God on me to try to scare me into being Christian, and I was really good Christian so long as I was scared. And they tried to use guilt on me, and they tried to use hype on me, and finally, finally, God was able to capture me with that overwhelming, never-ending love and I just got this deep sense that God knew me and still chose me. And that's where faith began for me. And, and then from there, I recognized that the that, uh, Christianity for me had been a whole lot about pretending and acting. I, and I was really well behaved and I really thought that's what I was supposed to do. And as I told uh, the students, um, there's a difference between acting in the world of drama. There's a difference between acting and method acting. Acting is just when you pretend to be a particular character, whatever character you've been uh, assigned. Uh, acting is when you show up on set and you try to act like that character. But method actors start long before the cameras are on, long before the lights go up, and they so immerse themselves into the character they're going to portray so that the by the time they get to the set and the lights come on, they're not acting because they have become the character. And I hear Paul saying something like that when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I recognized there needed to be some of that. I needed to become a method actor. In other words, I needed to stop acting, and I really needed to start becoming. Becoming. And then, 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 and we're going to start to get into what we're going to talk about in the next couple of days. I said this to, I said this to your students. I said, look, for the longest time, there was too much me in my relationship with God. Too much me. It was me trying to tell God, God, I'm writing this beautiful story, and I know that you want to be a part of it. And God, I want you to be a big part of the story that I'm writing, only to hear God say to me one day, you know what, John, I appreciate that. But God said to me, I'm writing a story too, and really I'd like for you to be a chapter in my book rather than the other way around. So for the musicians in the room, it was, it was something like this. I kept saying, God, listen to this cool song I'm, I'm writing and learning, and I'm going to sing for you. And God said, that's great, John. Now, John, listen to this great song that I want to teach you. I want to teach you, God said, my song. And I want to incorporate you into the song. And people, that's when faith took flight for me. 
When I recognized that relationship with God had more to do with God than with John. And I recognized that what I was doing, I was doing in response to love and grace. Then I was able to participate with God and hopefully, and I'm still learning to, participate with God to make this beautiful music. And I found a video that I want to kick off with tonight that is a demonstration of kind of what I'm talking about. And it goes a little something like this. is the representation of faith that makes the most sense to me now. And I hope it makes some sense to you that we are participating with God to do what it is that God wants to do here and now. And all God's people said, Amen. oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I need you to coach my folks back home. So hopefully I've got you on my side because I need you to trust me, y'all. I need you to trust me because I'd like to, for the next couple of nights, talk to you uh, and preach to you from the book of Revelation. Oh, I know, I know, I know. The book of Revelation, I mean, it's, it has this terrible, nasty reputation. And, and let me tell you, I was one of those guys who, as a pastor, would leave the book of Revelation up on the shelf, right? Just kind of leave it in the no-fly zone over there. And here's why. I was petrified by it. I, I was troubled by it. And the, really, the single biggest thing I did to cut through 
all that I heard about the book of Revelation, the single most effective thing you can ever do to cut through all of that junk is actually read the book of Revelation. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to kind of traipse through a few chapters, not the whole thing, but a few chapters of the book of Revelation. But can we, can we dispense with some things first? Look, now, when I was in um, high school, uh, I was scared spitless by the book of Revelation. <laughs> people used it. I told you. I told you that people kind of used it to try to scare me into being Christian. Like, what if God finds you somewhere and you're not where you're supposed to be and maybe God will leave you or maybe God will take you while you're on a walk with your dog and leave your dog right there. That just all seemed scary to me. And then worse than that, there was this. Do you, any of you remember this movie, Thief of the Night? Oh, man, Nazarene used to be terrible about showing this movie on Thursday night to try to scare high school kids into being Christian. And again, it worked pretty much for me every time, like 30 times. But it has gotten worse because here recently we've even had this. Now, if this is your favorite movie, I apologize because I'm about to offend you, all right? <laughs> Even, you can tell by the look on his face, even Nicolas Cage knows that this doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> this is the movie poster or part of it for the movie Left Behind. Let, let me tell you something. <laughs> the book of Revelation is good news. The book of Revelation is good news. Now, you have to know how to read it. And you have to know what it is that you are reading. But I'm telling you, as a pastor of the church now, going on, well, I went in 1990. I started on staff at our church in 1990 when I was six. I started on church. But I've been their senior pastor now for almost 11 years. And in all of that time, I've never found a book of the Bible that has more resources for us as the people of God to tell us how to be the people of God and to tell us what it is that God is hoping for and aching for and searching for in all of creation. I found no book better than the book of Revelation. And so if you'll let me, I just want to dip your toes into the waters of Revelation and uh, let's do so, look at this next picture. I think it's important that we use the, the right lenses. Have you ever been to a 3D movie? Anybody? Have you ever cheated and gone, I want to see what this, and what happens when you take your 3D lenses off? It garbles the whole screen. It garbles the image. And it makes it really hard to watch. I don't know about you, but I kind of get sick to my stomach. All the reactions I had to the book of Revelation before I started reading it better. There are some lenses that you're going to need in order to properly take in the book of Revelation. Are you still with me so far? All right. Here, here are the lenses that we're going to need. Number one, you're going to need to know that it's about, go ahead, the here and the now. It's 3D lenses, right? You know why you wear 3D lenses? So that you can kind of feel like you're in the midst of the action. Something that's thrown on the movie looks like it's coming at you. Really, you're supposed to understand the book of Revelation like this. Hear me. If you have decided that the book of Revelation is only about what happens way off into the future, you will miss the point of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation isn't simply about what's going to happen somewhere out far into the future. That's two-dimensional, right? It's three-dimensional. It's not just about what happens way out into the future. It's about what happens all the time, all the time. All the time there are threats to the throne. All the time, those threats to the throne threaten us 
who are supposed to only be chasing around one king and kingdom. You need to wear the lenses of the here and the now in order to properly access the book of Revelation. Second lens, Apocalyptic Lit 101. I did a fun thing today. I went to, I'm not going to say this right. I went downtown to the Rappahannock Library. Amen. All right. And I just walked around. I like that little library. I got a chance to stay there and study for a long time, but I walked around. And I noticed there's lots of different kinds of books. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> there's not just a lot of books. There's different kinds of books. I mean, you can find your science fiction books. You can find your self-help fix-it books. You can find cookbooks. You can find romance novels. Here's the thing. You all are all smart enough to know how to read a cookbook as opposed to how you're going to read science fiction. Make some sense? Well, this would be in its own category at the library, at the bookstore. It would be called apocalyptic literature. And here's what we do with apocalyptic literature. It's kind of really what it means. Apocalyptic means to pull back and reveal, like to pull back a veil. What you're doing when you read apocalyptic literature is you're pulling back the curtain to reveal the truth. During the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, the Roman emperor and the Roman empire, they were posing as ultimate powers in all of creation. Posing. Now, they were doing a pretty good job of it. Big and strong and powerful. And even our author, John, was suffering the consequences of pushing back against their authority. But Jesus shows up and says, I got a message. I got a message. And using the language, the literary language of apocalyptic literature, John is able to pull back the curtain so we can see behind, behind the Roman emperor and the Roman empire to see the truth. Is that video next? It needs to be next. Let's, let's watch this, let's watch this video. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The greatest boss has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug. Uh, yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. And really not the Wizard of Oz. So Toto does something kind of apocalyptic there, if you saw that. Yeah, Oz was presented as this giant green-headed thing, right? And they were all intimidated and frightened by it until somebody, in this case it was Toto the dog, pulled back the curtain to reveal, no, there's a truth behind this curtain, the Roman emperor and the Roman empire was doing all of this and more, trying to convince anybody who was paying attention, no, we are the biggest bully on the block. The resurrected Jesus shows up in Genesis 1 and says, hang on a second. Look at this. 
and pulls back the curtain to reveal something bigger and stronger and better than any Roman emperor. We're not going to read the whole thing. Can I give you a little bit? Of, are they pretty good at doing homework assignments? Can I give you just, no, they're not? Okay, all right, so. <laughs> I want to give you just a little bit of a homework assignment. I'd like for you to read chapter one. And I want you to pay particular attention to the terms in which the resurrected Christ is described. Now, I'm going to give you the MRSV, the Middendorf Revised Standard Version, just right quick as we go to something else. Here's the thing. The resurrected Jesus shows up in all of his glory, but he doesn't just show up. He shows up with a particular message, a particular message. Look at this next slide. Okay. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel, we're going to come back to that, that term here in a second, to his servant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Next slide. Now this word revelation is the English translation of the Greek word apocalypsis. It unveils the truth. Next slide. Okay. So we get to 120. Now there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of symbolism. And yeah, we have to work really hard to know what it is that's being said, what it is that's being communicated here. But the resurrected Christ shows up with a very specific message, and here it is. <laughs> I'm the resurrected Christ, was his message. Why don't my people act like it? Oh, man, you didn't say amen there. Okay, I'm going to give you another shot. <laughs> Guys, sometimes Christians act like that the real moment, the real important moment in this entire story of Christian history, in particular the Christ event, some people act like that the real important moment is the cross. And what's really cool is that God throws in the resurrection. Hear me. The important moment is the resurrection. Lots of people died. <laughs> Lots of people died on crosses. The cross doesn't make the resurrection. The resurrection gives the cross its meaning. Oh, that's much better. Much better. Thank you. Keep that up. And the resurrected Jesus shows up to say to John the Revelator, I want you to send this message to all of the churches. And here is the message. You guys need to start acting like you're on the winning side. Because the resurrection unmasks and unveils Rome for what it is. A bully, but not the ultimate power. Rome can kill, but can Rome bring back to life? No. So Jesus shows up to say to John, John, say to the churches, churches like Salem Fields, churches like Oklahoma City First Church, say to all of those churches, hey, there's really good news if you'll put skin and flesh on it. And the really good news is we win. We've won, we are winning, we will win. Can we please start organizing according to the victory? Whew. And then, this is said. Okay, now look in verse 20 there. If you are following along, God bless you. So, there is this huge, huge, huge um, 
image-rich sort of scene. And at the end of this scene, there you have Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, the King amongst all kings, bigger than the Roman emperors, standing amongst lampstands with lights on these lampstands. Lampstands were representative of churches. Churches, okay? As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, it just tells us straight out, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I have this message for all of these churches. And by the way, we know that numbers have great significance. You know already, and we can talk about it later if you'd like, you know that the number 666 has significance in the book of Revelation. It's not quite what I thought it was. Maybe you're getting it right right now. It really means imperfect all the way to evil. But the number seven means perfect or, in this case, lots or all. So I have a message, says Christ, for all of these churches. For all of the churches. Because there were more than seven churches in the area. But he does stop and talk through seven different individual local churches. And he says this, very interesting, say to the angel of this church. Now, this book has been my passion for seven years now. And I have read so much of what is out there about the book of Revelation. There is a huge argument over what is meant by this term, angel. Say to the angel of a church. Now, does it mean a pretty little cherubim? I, I, don't, I don't think it does. I think it means something more akin to the gathered up spirit of a place. That would fit the way that that particular term was used elsewhere in the area. The gathered up spirit of a place. Let me ask you this. Um, does Salem Fields have a gathered up spirit? Because Oklahoma City First Church still does. Oh, it absolutely does. Let, let me ask you this. Does your family have a gathered up spirit? If you don't think it does, ask the person who marries into your family. <laughs> a gathered up spirit that at some point might even have some power. Look at this picture right here. This is a classic brawl between the Yankees and the Red Sox, right? And not too long ago, my wife and I were going somewhere else, but we got held over. In fact, our trip got canceled because there was an ash cloud. Remember that ash cloud not too long ago? We got stuck in uh, New York City, but actually sort of maneuvered our way to tickets to a Yankees-Red Sox game. Now, my wife, now we're in New York City, my wife is a, is a Red Sox fan. She just loves Boston, right? I'm ambivalent. I'm a Sooners fan. Amen. Uh, <laughs> And so my wife has her Red Sox hat on, and here we walk into Yankee Stadium during a Yankee Red Sox series. Yankee Stadium has a gathered up spirit. <laughs> Yankee Stadium has a gathered up spirit that exerted some control over my precious wife. I mean, we sat down and watched as there were literal fisticuffs around us. And so my wife, affected by the gathered up spirit of the place, got up during the third inning and came back. And I said, are you okay? She said, yes. What'd you do? She said, I bought a Yankees hat. <laughs> <laughs> hey. 
So Yankee Stadium has a gathered up spirit. Your family has a gathered up spirit. Churches have a gathered up spirit. For better or for worse, churches have a gathered up spirit. In the book of Revelation, you have chapter 1 where Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, reintroduces himself to all of creation as the winner. And then he says to John, I have messages for seven different churches. And that happens in chapters 2 and 3. One of those churches is Ephesus. We're going to spend some time talking about the church in Ephesus today. And if it pertains to Salem Fields, great. It does pertain to Oklahoma City First Church. And this is a, a message I preached to them. And we were all stung a little bit by it. Let's, let's keep going. What's next? Oh, that's the big, yeah. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now let's talk a little bit about Ephesus the city. It should be next, right? Yeah, this is Ephesus. Now Ephesus was incredible. An incredible ancient city. That See, these cities within the Roman Empire would every once in a while compete for money from Rome. You had to kind of put in something like an Olympic bid. And Ephesus so wanted to be loved and adored by Rome, they actually were known as Little Rome. They won this contest four times. They got a lot of money, and they built some impressive things. Look, here's some of what they built. There's this giant Colosseum that was built during this time. Next, some incredible architecture and an arch like this. And one of the seven or eight uh, ancient wonders of the world, they built this next thing, this temple to Artemis. Now, that's an artist's rendition because it is in shambles right now. But this is important. We're going to come back to this. The, the temple of Artemis, a goddess. Now, the temple of Artemis demonstrates that Artemis is a big deal and a competing faith system. Everybody with me? The worship of the goddess Artemis was a competing faith system for what we think was a little Christian church there in Ephesus. Now, this little Christian church, though, man, there's a, a sense in which, there's a sense in which God is proud of this little church because the people in this little church are doing good enough theology. I love theology. I asked Buddy the other day, why am I here? I mean, you've got Sam Chand. And he's going to do like hand motions and stuff that Peter loves so much. And he's going to, and you brought this other, this other young big shot in here. He seemed like a good guy. Why am I here? And Buddy said, you're here to do theology. Okay, I'm going to do theology. Ready? This little church, I love theology. This little church had good enough theological filters that they could filter out the bad and keep the good. That's good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Paul had a hand in establishing this church. In fact, we see a little bit of the inner workings of the church in Ephesus all the way back in Acts chapter 19. Isn't that what we've got right here? Yeah. I love this little line here. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. Now, in the book of Acts, the way is the way of Christianity. And here's what had happened. There, uh, there existed around this giant temple of Artemis a, a pretty healthy industry of knick-knack sales. You know, just stuff. Like little miniature silver versions of the goddess herself or of this temple. 
people would travel and they would come, they would get their souvenirs, they would buy. And then here comes the Apostle Paul, who comes in saying, wait a minute. Artemis is not God. The resurrected Son of God is God. And there in Ephesus, this was not only an offense to their theological underpinnings, but as you can imagine, they were also offended because this guy, if he kept on talking out loud, was going to cost them business. And so they got rid of Paul. But Paul left a church that developed the theological muscles to say, no, 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 no. Artemis is not God. The resurrected Son of God is God. Whew, good stuff. Look at this next. I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. They are still using their good theological muscles. They're still using their good theological filters. And for all intents and purposes up to this point, God is, Christ is super happy with them. Next verse, I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, that you have not grown weary. Keep after it. Now, here's the thing. I told you this is for my church. I have a lot of uh, thinkers at my church. It's an intimidating thing to preach at my church and look out at my Old Testament professor and my New Testament professor, and my systematic theology professor, and a former uh, pastor. All those people just intimidate the stew out of me, right? There's beyond that, there's a lot of people who like to know that they're getting it right. And I gotta tell you something, I want to get this theology thing right. I mean, can I tell you this? Just because we're in a church doesn't mean we're always getting it right. And, and, I would submit that there are some churches who are benefiting greatly <laughs> because they're not getting it right. The way of Christ, the way of the cross, it's not always popular, you guys. And I am sometimes concerned that, that churches do church in ways to appeal to what it is inside of us that is always attracted to the popular, the next best thing, the bigger, the better, the louder, the flashier. I'm not sure that's always the way of Christ. It's important to me that we get it right. It's important to me that I get it right where my own faith is concerned. And I will say this to you, that it's really bad when we don't get it right. For example, when we try to use the Bible like a weapon, when we try to use the book of Revelation like a weapon, when we try to frighten people into faith, I don't think we're getting it right. Grace, grace needs to be our song. Because it's God's song. Now, watch this. Next verse. But I have this against you, says Christ to this church. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Verse 5, remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, now this is terrifying. If not, says the resurrected Christ, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Whoa. 
Okay, so this is a church in Ephesus that had worked very hard to get it right, get it right, get it right, get it right. But here is what Christ is saying to them. Great, you have worked really hard to get it right, get it right, Oklahoma City first. You've worked really, really hard to get it right. You can determine who's in and who's out. You can determine what's right and what's wrong. You've gotten really good at flexing your theological muscles. You've gotten really good at applying your theological filters. Here's the problem. In the process, you've forgotten how to love. I remember standing up in front of my church, a church full of folks who are super smart and who love getting it right. I remember standing up in front of them and saying, and I'm, I'm telling it like this because I'm, I'm not assuming this about you. I remember standing up in front of them saying, look, if we have to make a choice between getting it right and being a loving people, the Bible says we choose being a loving people at the risk even of getting it wrong. In other words, you can be right, but if you stop loving, well, you're wrong. In other words, and maybe I'm talking to you now. Ready? The chief export of a good church is not its ability to correctly articulate its beliefs. chief export of your church and my church needs to be unbelievable, never-ending love. Now be careful, because i got a couple of you nodding and saying amen, and I love that, but I want you to be careful. Because typical churches and perhaps we do and perhaps you do fall into this category. Typical churches have a way of saying these people are in and these people can't be in. There are certain things that we will not allow into our children. Think of our children. There are certain whole groups of people that we will not allow into the church because we have standards. We will protect our holy huddle from those people who do those things. Amen. And God will say, hey, you're super close to getting it right, and you're so proud of getting it right, you're about to get it wrong. The chief export of a church that enjoys the lampstand, the chief export of a church, the chief export of a church for its neighborhood, if it is going to reflect the love of this particular resurrected Savior, your chief export can't be your rightness. It has to be your unreasonable love. Let me ask you what I ask my folks, is that okay? Who's not welcome? Now, of course, you don't have any literature saying the following people are not welcome. <laughs> if you do, I, I, uh, you should shred that, right? <laughs> but sitting where you are, who's not welcome? It's not something we say out loud. We don't either. 
But I kind of have an idea who's not welcome at OKC first. And I have people, and I have people in my church who are willing to come to me and say, the Bible says this, 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 and this, and these people are not welcome. It's this remarkable story. There was this woman who was actually caught in the act of adultery. I don't know if you remember this story. She was caught. She was caught. She was guilty. The Bible doesn't quarrel with whether or not she was guilty. She was caught in the act of adultery. And these religious leaders, they were religious leaders. In fact, they were religious scholars. They, they knew all of these verses. I'm sure they had them committed to memory. They were engraved in their minds and their imaginations. They knew what you do with people who sin sexually. They know what you do with people who are outside the boundaries. And they go and they grab her by the hair. And they drag her in front of Jesus. And now what we have here is a contest between differing interpretations of God. Differing interpretations of what it means to be the people of God. And on one side, you have these people who have studied the law. They know the law front and back. They know every word. They know where all the punctuation is. This side, you have these scholars. You have these scholars who can tell you what the Bible says. And on this side over here, you have, listen to me, the word of God. And so they correctly, they correctly quote to Jesus. Okay, now, chapter and verse, Jesus, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. Be quiet down there. Chapter and verse, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. This woman deserves death. It's in the Bible. Jesus says, yeah, that's in the Bible, isn't it? Okay, i tell you what, i tell you what. Uh, let's do it like this. Only the people who aren't also deserving of punishment get to throw rocks at her. And I'll get out of the way. Can you imagine the deafening silence? In fact, I'm sure that the only sound you could hear was the sound of heavy rocks falling off the ends of fingers and hitting the ground. Those dull thuds as these people recognize they've been judged by the Son of God. And so, slowly but surely, they file out Jesus makes his way over to this woman who I'm sure is just now getting over her hysterics. And in my head, he helps her to her feet, takes her face into his hands and says, where'd they go? Where are your accusers? Because he, she was guilty. And she said, they're gone. And then the Son of God, who wins the contest, by the way, says to her, I don't condemn you either. Now, now, somebody in the room is going to say, you didn't finish the story. Hey, 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 there's another line. <laughs> hey, the next line is pretty important, John, right? Yep, 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 yep. Here's the next line. Go now and leave your life of sin. Some of you think that's the most important line. It's not. Do you think that the God who just saved her from an execution 
would see her fall and say, well, you deserve it next time. You're on your own. Or does love endure? I don't condemn you either. Oh, I like this. I like it. I see some furrowed brows out there. I like it. Yeah, that's what's happening here in this letter. In this letter, to this strong church in Ephesus, the resurrected Jesus is saying to them, I know what it says. Make sure you don't get so good at what it says that you miss what it means. If your chief expert, export, expert, if your chief export isn't love, this unusual love, your lamp stands in danger, Salem Fields. You know, you can gather a lot of people in a building, and it still may not be a church. Look at this quote from William Barclay. Strict orthodoxy, this is a guy who wrote biblical commentaries. This guy made a living, he made a living getting the Bible right. <laughs> and he writes, strict orthodoxy can cost too much if it has to be bought at the price of love. Whoa. Have you ever seen any of the movies entitled Les Miserables? I'm about to show you a scene from an older one the one that Liam Neeson's in. But let me tell you what has happened. Liam Neeson's character, Jean Valjean, has been caught. He's guilty, you guys. He's guilty. He's been caught red-handed, having stolen silver from the priest's household the night before. Not only did he steal the silver from the priest, he hit the priest in the head. The priest looks like he's got a little bit of a shiner. The police find him and drag him back so that this person caught red-handed can finally face justice. But I want you to watch what happens in this clip. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. Really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, 
You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Now the people in the room who are saying, yeah, but the priest lied, you guys. have missed the point. And I'm afraid if that's where you arrest your development right there, I'm afraid you've made a habit of missing the point. Truth is, Jean Valjean is guilty. And this guy, the next guy here, Javert, has made a life, a life out of Convicting, enforcing the law. <clears throat> we are meant to be grace people more than we are meant to be law people. Don't believe me, ask Zacchaeus. Don't believe me, ask the woman caught in the act of adultery. Don't believe me? Ask the criminal crucified at Jesus' side. Don't believe me? Ask Simon Peter. <laughs> and then ask him again and ask him again because it seems to take three times. Right? <laughs> are grace people more than we are law people? John, do the laws not mean anything? Does the law, does the Torah not mean anything? Of course it does. Hear me say it. Hear me say it correctly. Ready? More than we are Torah people, we are grace of Christ people. Still furrowed brows. I love that. I love furrowed brows. It means you're wrestling with it. And you're supposed to. John, 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 John. This seems awfully dangerous to me. If we let grace win the day, then what will happen? I don't know. Let's ask Jesus. <laughs> Boy, Jesus was willing to risk grace, wasn't he? Even at his own personal cost. Did I forget to mention that it was the resurrected, victorious Jesus that shows up on John's doorstep? With a message for people who wonder if we're going too far with this grace thing, and the message went something like this, will you please tell my people that we won with grace? We can win with grace. We will win with grace. Last verse. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Listen. And to everyone who conquers in this way. I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Now that rings a bell. But let me explain to you what's going on here. That rings a bell because we are familiar with this terminology, tree of life. Turns out the tree of life that you and I are thinking about right now that's in Genesis 1 is not the only tree of life in, in, in antiquity. There was, in the temple of Artemis, it was so big that it had a garden in the middle of it. 
And that garden in the middle of the temple of Artemis, this is a competing faith system, right? There was in the middle of that garden a giant tree. It probably looked something like this. <laughs> a giant tree. And they called that giant tree in the garden within the temple of Artemis, you guessed it, the tree of life. Listen to this, though. This will blow your mind. They had this very strange law on the books in Ephesus that went something like this. If you are caught doing something terrible and you're going to face punishment, if you can elude the police and get all the way to the tree of life and touch the tree of life, then you are going to be absolved of any guilt and you won't face the punishment. It's like you get a new lease on life, a do-over, a start-over to this church to this church that had fallen away, to this church that had forgotten that our chief export is love. In saying this in verse 7, the resurrected Christ is offering them a do-over, a start-over, a clean slate, saying, look, you know that goofy tree in the middle of that goofy garden, in the middle of that goofy temple? Yeah, I know you do. It means a start-over. It means a do-over. Hear me, if sitting where you are right now, you recognize that if you had been in the room when the teachers of the law and the scribes dragged that woman before Jesus, if sitting where you are in your deepest, most honest place, if you think you might have been on the wrong side of that room, you get a chance for a do-over. Man, I know some folks raised in the church. Boy, these folks know exactly where all the laws and the rules are, and they are willing to roll up their little Bibles and use them like weapons. And they are sweet people, and I really love them. I just really want them to be captured by grace. I'm all the time with those people catch the metaphor here. I'm all the time with those people at my place trying to coax them over to this tree of life saying, touch it, touch it, touch it. Start over. Start over. Love awaits you. Love has granted you another chance because that's what grace does. And you, even you, even you, if sitting where you are, you feel like, man, I might be legalistic. I know exactly who I don't want here. You have a chance for a do-over. You have a chance for this love to capture your imagination and change as much as you can individually, maybe over a period of time. The angel of the church of Salem Fields changes until finally it's known citywide as the place where love just spills and splashes on you as soon as you walk in the door. Because, truthfully, everyone is welcome. Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for these leaders. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the angel of this place that you have over a period of time shaped 
I pray, Lord, that you will save us from the plight of Ephesus, who, history tells us, couldn't quite make the turn, and so eventually they disappeared. God, give us now just enough humility to search our own hearts. And we ask ourselves this difficult question. Is love our chief export? And as it has to do with the way that we live our individual lives, not just how we are when we're gathered up, as important as that is, but as we live our individual lives as people of faith, is love my chief export? And if the answer is no, God, receive us, would you? Give us another taste of this love that you hope that someday we will be able to dispense. Give us another taste, another chance. Choose us again. Knowing us, knowing us like you do, choose us again anyway. Until finally all of our lives are lived in response to this never-ending grace, this unbelievable love. We love you, Lord. We're at our best when we're just about embarrassed by how deeply you know us and how well you love us. May we live out of that response today and every day. Stay close by my side, burning fire.
purpose, the reason we exist is to know Jesus and to share real hope with anyone, anywhere. Been working with that with the board and kind of some of you have been working with that with the one degree thing, you know, if you've been working with you, you know what that's all about. I was tempted, not, I didn't do it because I was fearful of it, but I, at one board meeting, I wanted to ask the question, I just didn't get to ask it was, uh, if we're going to share real hope with anyone, is there anyone that we won't share real hope with? Is there anyone that we won't share real hope with? So when John said that, it just took me back to that moment when I had to ask myself that question. Is there anyone that I won't share real hope with? Is there anyone outside of God's love? Is there anyone outside of God's grace? Is there anyone that we wouldn't share real hope with? I got a text just a few minutes ago from a woman who has been judged. And she told me, John, she loved you. She needed grace. God bless you. Thank you, Father. 
Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace that extends to me, a sinner such as I. And I just pray, Lord, tonight that your Holy Spirit would just help us to go deeper with this message in our own life. That it won't just be something, God, that we walk out tonight and say, great message, but God, it will penetrate our hearts. And Father, we truly will be a church where we're willing to share real hope with anyone, everywhere, without reservation. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to take a love offering like we always do. At the doors as you leave, there will be buckets. The machines are out there. You can give online. You know, it costs about five to $6,000 to do a revival with food and travel and speakers. And you want to give them a little something and all that. So if you can help us, that would be great, and we'd appreciate it. If you can't, that's okay, too. God will work that out somehow. Have a great evening. We'll see you tomorrow, 615, for dinner.